Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall on Coming Up for Air, back for a uh, another wonderful discussion here with Kayla Solomon. Hi, Kayla. Good morning. And Dominique Simone Levine. Hi, Dominique. Good morning. So, Dominique, why don't you get us started and just introduce the topic for today? Sure. We got a note from a member, someone who had listened to our podcast in which I described a a scenario where the father found his son, son's truck at the saloon and he took the extra set of keys he had and he drove the truck back towards their home, but parked it a block away. And the situation unfolded where everybody got very angry and the police were called and the son would not settle down sufficiently. So the police ended up putting him in jail for the night. Here's what our our member said. Dominique tells the story about a dad who sees his adult son's truck parked at a saloon. Not wanting the son to drive home intoxicated, dad uses an extra set of keys to drive the truck home, but parks it a block away. When the son returns home, he's intoxicated and ranting about his stolen truck. Dad does not tell son where the truck is, but stays silent on the subject while son calls the police to report the stolen truck. Police arrive, an intoxicated son is raging to police. Dad tells police where the truck is, but doesn't tell the son. This whole scenario about dad parking truck away seems passive aggressive to me. What point was made here? What purpose served? Was an enraged son the ultimate goal so the police would intervene and arrest him? Dad had to know his son would be upset about his stolen truck, yet he took no steps to alleviate his son's anxiety and anger about a situation that was created by the dad. I can see why dad didn't want his son to drive. In my opinion, using craft, when son did come home from the saloon, he would have seen the truck in the driveway and gotten a brief explanation from dad on why it was there. Off to bed with further discussion tabled until the next day when son was no longer intoxicated, and both parties were more calm. What am I missing here? Can I comment? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. So the thing about craft and the thing about what you're being taught on the website is that craft is a structure for you to pass through your decision-making. It's skills and strategies, but they are flexible that you get to utilize in a way that's going to work best for your family. So what this dad did, he's the expert on his family, on how he would like to address this situation. And I would argue that craft is not, it's not written in stone that these are the steps that you have to take, that this dad did utilize craft skills. 
He just did them differently than another family might use craft skills. And the wonderful thing about craft and all of these strategies that we're learning is that you can pick and choose when to use them. You don't have to use them 24-7, right? You can pick and choose each situation because you're the expert on your family. So I do this activity in my rest meetings and we call it three questions to ask yourself in our decision-making structure. We talk about this structure as it's three questions that you're going to ask yourself anytime you have a decision that you need to make. And it doesn't matter what the decision is. It could be, do I say this? Do I not say this? Do I give money? Do I not give money? Do I give them a ride? Should I talk to them about this issue? You're going to ask yourself these three questions. And I'll I'll give you the three questions. The three questions are, will it improve my quality of life? Will it reduce use in my loved one? And will it improve family relationships? And we have two kind of added pieces that come along with it, which is you want to ask these questions in the short term and then the long term, but you also have to go back and ask them backwards. So what I mean, order matters. So asking yourself these questions in this particular order is important. And so it goes something like this. Will it improve my quality of life in the short term if I do this particular thing? Will it improve my quality of life in the long term if I do this particular thing? And I'm going to go through all three questions and I'm going to ask myself that. But then I'm also going to go back. I'm going to start again and I'm going to ask myself, will it improve my quality of life in the short term if I don't do this particular thing? So you're you're kind of weighing the positives and negatives and We often discuss how this decision-making structure is actually not about getting to the right. And right now I know listeners can't see it, but I'm doing air quotes, the right answer, because I strongly believe there really isn't a right or a wrong answer. It depends on the family. It depends on the situation. It depends on your loved one. It depends where everybody is on their journey. All this structure is, is an opportunity for you to stop and think, stop and think. And ultimately in the end, let's say you come to the conclusion that the best possible solution would be to not do something, not give them money, for example, and then you give them the money. We say in rest, no judgment here, no judgment here at all. Because oftentimes families will do that. And that just says that there's probably something else that needs to be worked on. Or maybe it's a matter of baby stepping someone over to that particular um, solution. And they need to look at the gray area. And it's not just black and white. It's not, if you do this, I will do that. Or if you don't do this, I have to do that. It's not. There is a huge gray period uh, space in between there. And this structure is just inspiration for you to stop and think it through and then work from there. 
saying that craft says you have to do it this way that, you know, this dad had to do it this way. Well, you know, there are some other things to think about. Craft also says safety is of the utmost importance. And that dad was making sure that um, his son wasn't going to have access to the truck. And we don't know if that son, would, if he had seen the truck in the driveway, that it would have been, wouldn't have been a knockdown, drag out fight of give me the keys. I want to go back to the bar. We don't know what was going on in that dad's mind and what his thoughts were. You're the expert on your family. You're the one who's got to work on what's going on with you. And you have to determine how you're going to use these strategies. So this is a story that's 15 years old now, I think. But as best as I recall that family, they were a lovely family. I worked a long time with them. I wonder if you can put me through the exercise. I'm going to answer you as though I were the dad. Okay, sure. Because I come to, I've come to you with this story. That is what happened. Regardless of how much craft there was in that story, there was significant issues of safety that got in front of his decision-making, obviously. So walk me through it in retrospect as a father coming to you with this story, and let's see how it's, it holds up. Okay. So let me ask you this. Let's narrow it down to what the decision-making was. Because that dad had quite a few decisions he had to make across the board. And I think that the comment that you got or the post that you got, they're wondering why dad parked the truck a block away and didn't park it in the driveway. So let's narrow it down to the dad is trying to make the decision of where to put the truck. Should he put the truck in the driveway or should he put it a block away? Okay. So let's look at it this way. Okay, so what dad might ask himself, and let's pretend you're dad, Dominique. The first question is to dad, will it improve my quality of life if I park the car in the driveway in the short term? No, he will do everything. He will be so angry that I touched his car that it's going to create a huge fight. Okay. Will it improve my quality of life in the long term if I park the truck or if dad parks the truck in the driveway? Yes, because I will hold to my decision and not give him keys, but it's going to be a big fight in the front yard. Okay. He will have a safe evening, which is my, my, the original point for where I parked the truck. Okay. So will it reduce use in his son if he parks the truck in the driveway? No, because I think the son will go back out with the truck. Okay. Will it reduce use in the son in the long term if he parks the truck in the driveway? Yes, if I can hold to my not giving the keys, not having it create a battle. Okay. Will it improve family relationship? And we usually define family as anybody that's involved in this situation. So it might just be dad and son, but it also could be dad, mom, and son, dad, mom, siblings, grandparents. It could even be friends that are living there or what, you know, whatever. So it's anybody that's really involved. So the question is, will it improve family relationships in the short term if dad parks the truck in the driveway? I really expect a violent, aggressive, mean son to return and it's going to be a scene in the front yard if the truck is there and I don't give him the keys. Okay. He will be so upset that I have touched his truck. Okay. And what about in the long term? 
Same question, long-term, family relationship. I think it could be a moment that, yeah, if I can hold on to the keys, it could be a moment that shows everyone how serious this is. And it also still could put a little bit of resentment. I mean, if in the short term, you have these big blowout, violent kind of aggressive situations in the long term, there could be feelings of resentment and hopelessness. It's not going to change, right? Absolutely. So now what we're going to do is let's go back because the choices were park in the driveway or park a block away so that the sun doesn't see the car or the truck. So now we're going to go back through it. And now we're going to look at parking the truck a block away. So will it improve dad's quality of life in the short term if he parks the truck a block away? Probably not by much because there's going to be a scene, but it's a different scene. Okay. Will it improve dad's quality of life in the long term if he parks the truck a block away? Yes, because the scene is just going to be smaller and shorter. It's going to be easier to deal with my son. He will not get the keys and he will not use the car, use the truck again. Okay. So will it reduce use in the sun if dad parks the car a block away in the short term? Yes. Okay. In the long term? Yes. Will it improve family relationships if dad parks the car a block away in the short term? No, not with my son, with the rest of my family, perhaps. Yeah, maybe within the whole family, right? And less of a violent kind of aggressive response from the son. So maybe it minimizes it compared to parking the car in the driveway. Right. What about in the long term? If dad parks the car a block away, will it improve family relationships? To the degree that we've avoided a big knockdown in the front yard, yes. And it's still a noticeable thing to have done. Even though at the time, what he's telling his son is his car is missing and we'll deal with the police in the morning. And, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the story he told him. Really, if you look at this in dad's point of view, the lesser of the most. Di- I mean, these are difficult things to do, whether you're parking the truck in the driveway or parking the truck a block away. They're difficult to do. But maybe dad's making the best choice in the situation by parking the truck a block away and letting the son deal with other things. Because I know in this story, the son calls the cops and my truck was stolen. And dad said, you know, let's just all go to bed. We'll talk about it in the morning. And the son refused. The cops were brought brought down, right? So in this situation, maybe this dad, the best option was for him to park the truck a block away let the son deal with any kind of blow up because the son's blow up is his own. He's not involving dad, right? It isn't dad and him having a blow up. It's the son and he gets to own that and he gets to suffer the natural consequences of flipping out and doing all of this stuff. So no judgment here, no judgment on my end of it. And in rest meetings, we talk about this. Nice, safe place. Whatever decision you make is your decision. And if you choose to park the truck a block away, you know, more power to you. And if you don't, if you choose to park it in the driveway and you want to deal with that stuff, that's where you're at. What's interesting listening to this process, this just 
basically illustrates to me what craft is about once again, which is slowing things down, really processing in a very specific way so that you could get your thoughts together in a very, very clear pathway so that you're making conscious choices. And I think what you said is really important, Lori, that it's not good or bad, right or wrong. This is great. Oh, I'm so happy I made this choice. When you're dealing with these crazy, difficult situations, every decision that you make feels wrong, even if it's the best one to make. So I feel like that needs to be the overarching theme here is it's not like, oh, you're going to feel great saying no to your kid about money or moving the car or not talking to them when they're using. That's none of these things feel good, but it's part of a decision making process of changing the dynamic. And I look at this and I'm like, oh, this is about stopping, slowing down, pausing our number one tool and thinking, which is not reacting. Okay, so none of this happened with an impulsive decision. And so part of what we're looking at here is, you know, you might not be able to have the luxury of that in the middle of a conversation, but what we're encouraging everybody to do is to engage in a different way of processing this so that you're thinking more clearly in the most difficult situation. And, you know, one of the the situations that I want to bring up that's very similar is we had a parent talking about in the group talking about how They've been having this great, deep conversation with their very silent child. And what they realized is they're back using probably benzos, which they had been off of for years and had a terrible, terrible train wreck of a situation years before, but that the benzos work on the anxiety enough that they could have this kind of conversation. So once again, their loved one is self-medicating unfortunately, but the medication has has some effectiveness, which is why they're able to calm themselves down enough to have these conversations. And what they're having to deal with is, you know, having to choose between, do I continue having these wonderful deep conversations, even though I know that what's really happening is that they're using, which is allowing this. And the one thing that I want to add to this, which is what you were referring to at the beginning, Lori, is that family members know. They have knowledge that none of us have, which is why advice is not part of our process. What it is, is it's slowing it down so that you're basically becoming your own consultant. So when we slowed it down in the group and thought about this, the mother knows that if she continues to be okay with this conversation, that's part of the encouragement of the use. And so she she has to actually make decisions about this. I have come across this so many times and it's heartbreaking because the only time they want to be with you, be in the room with you, sit with you, smile is when they're high. Now, here's what I know about benzos. And I'm going to suggest that the mom consider something along these lines, which is benzos in large quantities, very sloppy on their own. You're just probably very sedated with alcohol it's a different look. With cocaine, it's a different look. If it's just benzos, the mom should have a good idea of what benzodiazepines look like on her son. My hunch is that the fact that he's just calmer and able to talk with her means that he's not very high. So the mother could create the using and not using line at not very high is okay. I'm going to accept that. I'm going to act like it's rewarding. 
And if I see him droopy, sloppy, sedated, gone, you know, missing, all the signs are that he's coming home way wasted, I'm going to act like he's using. And that might create the little threading of the needle that she needs in order for her to get to a place with him quicker in which they can have the conversation of, look, you know, I do know you're using benzos again. And I wonder, I wonder what you and I can do about it. When you're ready, I have some ideas. I appreciate that when you're with me right now, you're not using very much. And so I, I'm really loving these conversations, but I do know where this goes with us and with you. And I'd like to avoid that. I know you would too. So let's make a plan for when it starts to become a problem, if it starts to become a problem. And also just this whole example of it, it tells you the incredibly intense, difficult decisions that families have to make. Oftentimes it's not a matter of making the best decision and having wonderful outcomes. It's not, it's about really difficult options. What are my options? What can I do? That's why I say with our decision-making structure, it is not, it is absolutely not about coming to the best possible, you know, solution or conclusion. It really is just what Kayla said. It's about stopping, trying to pass it through a logical structure, kind of have it be a well thought out response versus just a reaction. And nobody, nobody in our groups should be telling the family what they should or they shouldn't do, because there's also a lot of issues that maybe the family themselves are dealing with, which also gets complicated as to why they're behaving the way they're behaving right? Like there are things I might not be willing to challenge or chance in my decisions because I might not be able to deal with them. So that's why I talk about the gray area, because maybe I need just tiny little, not even inching over, but like half an inch at a time to get myself to a healthier boundary. Or maybe this isn't the particular area that I want to start attacking right now. Maybe I want to find something that's a little bit safer for me and start working from there. So to me, this is all about every family is their own expert and taking the time to stop and logically put it through a process, think, respond, and everybody else outside of the situation, just be there and observe and you know, can I help you with the strategies? Can I help you with the skills? Can I help you brainstorm? Can I do those things? Those things I can do, but you have to make the decisions for yourself and there's no judgment on my part. Well, that's why I feel like what craft is, is it's a frame. It's not an advice giving platform. It's a frame. And if we think about it as like, how do I work through this issue in this frame, in this structure? That's really what this is about. I feel like people want answers and certainty and, you know, like, what, what's the craft way to do this? And the craft way to do it is to slow things down. Really, it's that basic is slow things down, take the aspects that you know and bring them up and bring them to awareness so that they're part of your decision. And that's why what we talked about in the group this week is the knowing that you have knowing that if you slow things down, you're like, uh, 
I know. I just know this is happening. And if you're in reactivity, you're disconnected from your knowing. You're into just reacting, 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 and not really processing in a way that's helpful. So you might not have the the space to do it in any given moment, but a moment is a moment. It's going to pass. It'll happen again, whatever. And so the processing happens in between the incidents. I took part in Lori's educational group this past Monday, which is free to all our members. We have a number of support groups, three with Lori, one with Kayla, and we've just added a whole new suite of trainings um, for our families and skills groups. But what I wanted to say about what Kayla and, and Lori just were talking about is the skill Lori taught that group that night was she put them in, in subgroups and asked them to listen to one another, talk about somebody who's inspired them in their lives. And the person listening could not say anything, not uh-huh, not nod, just stay perfectly still, don't move, don't encourage, nothing for like a whole minute. And that was only part of the exercise because she also wanted the information about who inspires you because she does an exercise with that too, which you'll have to come to Lori's group to find out, but it's beautiful. But I've been trying that. <gasps> it is so difficult just to sit there without moving, without encouraging, without nodding, without uh-huhs, you know, all that inner communication. There's a word for it in communications. We're doing it now. <laughs> we can see each other and we're making faces and nodding our heads and smiling and indicating to the other person that we agree. I don't know if you remember that night we talked about how actually 90 like 90 percent of communication is the tone of your voice, the facial expressions and the body language. It's not the words, although the words play an important part, but a lot of it is how you're saying it. So just out of curiosity, Lori, what is what's your purpose of doing that? What are you hoping is going to happen? There's actually a couple of reasons why we do that. The first thing is to understand how difficult it is to actually listen, right? To actually sit and listen and keep yourself from putting your agenda in and getting your stuff in there. And the other, there's more to it than just the listening piece of it, but it forces you to listen to the person. And I make them listen for three characteristics of the person being described. And then they switch positions and the speaker becomes a listener, the listener becomes a speaker and they do it again. And then they come back to the room and we list off, I go through each person and we list off the characteristics of people that inspire them. And you get to see that it's, Someone that's patient, someone that listens, someone that cares, someone. It's nothing about being demanding, giving me unsolicited advice, telling me what I should do, right? Like it's, it's not. It's like, okay, so these people inspired you to change. And we've got a large group of people here saying very similar things. Who do you think is going to inspire your loved one to change? And don't you want to be that person for them? What I'm taking from what you said is that you also gave them something to listen for, because I, my first response to the, the uh, instruction was like, oh, my God, how do I not nod my head or smile or have expressions on my face? I would have to wear a paper bag, be like the unknown listener with little eyes coming out. And even my eyes would be doing things. But I feel like what you did that allows it to happen is you gave them something to listen for. And that's part of the act of listening is that you're 
focusing so much on the content that you're not worried about your response to it or trying to get the person to keep talking. You're listening so deeply. And when you listen that deeply, people know that you're listening because we nod, we may, we go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, whatever, because we want them to know that we're listening. But when you're actually listening, people know that you're listening. So we don't have to do the fake stuff that we do to try to let them know that we're listening if we're actually listening. If you can't nod and do all that stuff and you're listening for something, it literally forces you to kind of lean in and really listen for what you're listening for. And like you said, not the superficial stuff. Oh, yes. uh Uh-huh. Isn't that wonderful? And are you really listening? Right. Which is why I'm like, no, no talking, no grunting. (laughs) It's literally just listening. Just the last little piece of that that I saw was very, very beneficial for me because I'm very uptight and fast and in your face and interrupting. It made me have to let the person finish their sentence. And there was a pause. And then they had another sentence, which I would never have known about. I'm always right in there as soon as there's a pause. Right. So that was tremendously eye opening for me. Yeah, space between words, which we are all pretty uncomfortable with. Someone says something and then we feel we have to immediately fill that space. We can't have quietness. Oh, no. I actually say this a lot in meetings. Like I will throw a question out to the group and I want them to answer it. But I do want them to think. And so I'll ask a question and I'll see people like sit back, eyes go up, and I can tell they're thinking. And I can feel this sense of, oh, we need to answer her. We need to answer her. And I will say, it's okay. I'm, I'm incredibly comfortable with long, uncomfortable pauses, <laughs> right? I don't want you to just jump and answer me. The whole goal of this question was to actually get you to think. So let me represent the rest of the world, which is uncomfortable with the silences, okay? Because I am a fast processor, as you probably have realized. I'm like, blah, 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 and I could get into any space, and I'm a Brooklyn Jew, so we don't, we don't have pauses. We just overlap conversations, and that's our love language. So, of course, in my relationship, I wind up with somebody who's not a big talker and who actually has a lot of pauses, and I would ask a question, and then there was this silence, and I'm like, did you hear me? And she would say, I'm thinking, which was astonishing to me that somebody actually stopped and thought before they spoke was astonishing to me. And I feel like that's what we need to do is respect the space. So once again, we're back to the allies and recovery craft model of space actually is a value, whether it's you taking the space or giving the other person the space or stepping back to listen Space is an activity. Giving space is an activity. You know, it's funny. I learned that from my uh, my teaching days because I'm a former high school math teacher. And what would happen is we might do a problem or be working on a problem or I might ask a question of the class. And there was always one or two kids that immediately hand was up and I would turn to them and I would go, what's the answer? And they would give me the answer and it would be wrong. And now where do I go as a teacher? I don't want to hurt that kid. I don't want to discourage them from raising their hand and answering a problem. My goal is to get them to stop and think before they give me an answer, because 
I want them to actually think. So I learned a couple of things. I learned to say things like, so what I want you to do is I want you to take a moment and think about this problem. I don't want an answer right away. I want you to really kind of look at it and think at it. And then when you think you have an answer, I want you to raise your hand. And I would say to them, it's okay for us to have quietness right now. It's good to have these long pauses. Let's just think. And typically the students would stop and typically the students that normally would raise their hand still raise their hand pretty early compared to everybody else. But I would wait long enough that I would have 10 hands in the air and I would call on other students. And then I would throw them back into the mix every once in a while. But allowing for that pause did so much for the room. It did so much for me as a teacher. It did, right? It did so much for the students that automatically reacted. And it also did a lot for the students that didn't react. It pulled them back into the group. So anyway, we are really running out of time. We're at, we've been talking for quite a bit. So I'm thinking that maybe Kayla, why don't you give us a summary of what we talked about today? And then we will see each other again next weekend or next week rather. Well, what we talked about is, and I don't know what you call this decision-making process, if it has a name, but it's basically, often we have choices and decisions that we have to make and we have to pick the lesser of various evils. And so what rest is about is slowing things down, giving yourself time to stop and think, and then working through the situation by really exploring the various aspects that we talked about today and looking at long-term and short-term gain and what which choices of the lesser are the lesser of the evils so that you could pick the best decision at this moment that's not going to answer all the questions, but that it gets you moving in a different direction and that hopefully can you know mitigate some of the problems that come from this. But it's about really learning how to slow yourself down so that you're making conscious choices. And this is a really good process for making conscious versus reactive choices. Well, thank you, ladies. And I will talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.